0: Welcome to the West Side Gathering podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. The topic today, or the, the passage, is King Solomon's Dilemma from 1 Kings 3, verses 16 to 28. Uh, and in looking at a discussion of a king and his judgment and the decision he's making, I thought a good place to start would be to ask this question of, uh, you know, what, uh, what's a characteristic of a good ruler? Uh, a good king, good queen, prime minister, president, leader. Uh, but what are some characteristics that you would say, this is, this is a characteristic, this is what a good ruler is like? Any, anything come to mind? Just fair. Wisdom, fairness... I heard just, yeah? Anything else? Yeah. Equity? Integrity, integrity. sorry. <laughs> Equity too, though, that would be, no. Uh, <laughs> equitable. So integrity? Yeah. Compassion? Yeah. Generosity? Yeah. Okay. Now, now those, these a number of these, uh, I think what we'll see today, we're going to talk about a few characteristics that come out to us uh, in this story of Solomon, and they actually form a bit of a constellation of of characteristics that are linked uh, together. Uh, But I want to ask another question, and I didn't have this one on the screen. What are some qualities of a poor ruler? (laughs) These these are, they're leaping to mind, aren't they? But but what what would you say? What are some qualities of, this is a a bad king, or this is a, a really poor leader? Injustice? <laughs> prideful. Greed? Prideful? Narcissism. Narcissism. Got to bring out our dictionaries now. <laughs> Selfish? Compromise? Compromise? Yeah. yeah. Compromising? Sorry? Inflexibility. Inflexibility. Racist. Sorry? Racist. Racist? Okay. If only I could get you to share some things that are on your mind, but... uh, But we we can think of these different things. We have an idea of what a good ruler looks like, we have an idea of what a poor ruler looks like. Uh, This this last uh, semester, I I taught a course, and the name of the course was Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them in World Religions. Uh, And as confused as you probably are about the title of that course, I was too. I don't make up the titles, I was just given the course. And so I was like, well, this obviously has something to do with Harry Potter, but what, what am I doing with this? And uh, in the end, the course really was, uh, was looking at good and evil through the lens of fantasy literature. And so we looked at a number of different pieces of fantasy literature, uh, considered these uh, concepts of good and evil. And two of the, the epic poems that we looked at, one was the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, which is uh, labeled as kind of the oldest story in the world. Uh, is something that was only discovered in the 19th century on clay tablets, and actually the full story uh, isn't put together. Uh, but, it's, but scholars have been discovering more pieces and kind of bridging the story in different ways. Uh, but it, this story of Gilgamesh, which I'm not offering it here to you as necessarily a recommendation, it's a, fan, uh, it's a really interesting and fascinating story. One of my students decided to read it with his mother, uh, and he shared with us how awkward that became when they got to a part that was highly sexualized in the story. Uh, and I thought, oh, yes, that would have been very awkward to read with your mother. So I'm not offering it as necessarily, uh, here's some uh, family reading time. Uh, but it's this epic tale, and Gilgamesh, uh, what he wants is he wants to make his name great. He wants his name to be everlasting. And it's a tale of, of, of this king, this ruler of the great city of Uruk, and he is uh, a tyrant. That, that's just what he is. He just uh, puts everybody under his feet, and in that he wants to make his name great, so he is going to go looking for monsters to fight. That's, that's he. He hears of a monster, he paints the monster as evil, and then he goes and he's going to battle that monster to, for the prim- primary purpose of just making his name great. And there's a quote from the poem, Who is like Gilgamesh? And this is early in the poem. There is a transformation in Gilgamesh over time. Who is like Gilgamesh? What other king has inspired such awe? starts off well here, it sounds good. Who else can say, I alone rule supreme among mankind? The city is his possession. He struts through it, arrogant, his head raised high, trampling its citizens like a wild bull. He is king, he does whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants to the young men, he does whatever he wants to the young women. The only rule is his desire. No one dares to oppose him. So what you get a picture of at the beginning of the Epic of Gilgamesh is, here's a really poor king. In fact, pity the people that live under the rule of this king. Another poem we looked at was Beowulf. Uh, How many have seen the movie, uh, the film version, 2007, Stop Capture, Beowulf? Nobody, okay, all right. Well, that's good, because the movie actually uh, does incredible uh, injustice to the poem. Uh, In the movie, there's a king, Hrothgar, who's the king uh, of the Danes, and in, in the, the film version in 2007, Rothgar is, is just this lecherous drunk who slobbers around, uh, kind of like Gilgamesh, in a sense, just using his power, uh, trying to get whatever he can from everyone, but he's, he's, just, he's just a disgusting human being. In the, the epic poem, the ancient poem, Rothgar is this wonderful, generous king, and, and he builds Herorot, this this celebration hall, And the reason he builds Herod is because he wants a place where he can celebrate with his people and where he can be generous to them. That's his desire. The the film uh, completely changes him 180 degrees, 180 degrees, opposite of what the poem describes. Uh, And so here we say then it came into Hrothgar's heart that he would command men to fashion a hall and a mansion, a mightier house. For their mead drinking than the children of men had ever known, and there within would he apportion all things to young and old. For Hrothgar, being a good king, being a leader, foundational to it was one of the terms that, that uh, was thrown out generosity. He just, he wanted a place he could be generous to his people. Now, we have enough experience in life uh, either at very low levels of experiencing leaders who we can say, well, I've seen these really poor qualities in them or I've seen these very strong qualities in them. We see it at a domestic level, at different levels of, of governance. We see good and poor leadership. We see it on an international level. And we can see all sorts of the qualities uh, that we've described and sometimes we see them clashing uh, with each other in a particular person. Well, when we go to First Kings, here we come upon Solomon. And here's this king, he's, he's David's son, uh, from David's uh, uh, experience with Bathsheba. And we have King Solomon, and in 1 Kings, we're not going to spend much time in the first part of the chapter where uh, we, we hear about how Solomon became wise. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But after Solomon receives this gift of wisdom from God, he comes into, and we have this, this scenario where his, his wisdom is put on display. And it's a story that that is perhaps very familiar to you, uh, but I think it's one worth revisiting. Uh, And if you haven't heard this story, I think it's one worth uh, familiarizing yourself with. So here's the incident, and this starts at uh, 1 Kings 3, verse 16. Later, two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One woman said, "'Please, Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house.' Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth. We were together, there was no one else with us in the house, only two of us were in the house." So we have these two women, prostitutes, this shameful uh, profession, and, uh, and they're alone, right? Here's this scenario, there's no other witnesses to what's going on. The only family each woman has is the infant son that's been born to her, there's no other occupants of the house, and they're coming to the king Uh, for wisdom. So uh, as the story continues, uh, the one woman says, Then this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. She got up in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your servant slept. She laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, I saw that he was dead. But When I looked at him closely in the morning, clearly it was not the son I had born. But the other woman said, "No, the living son is mine, and the dead son is yours." The first said, "No, the dead son is yours, and the living son is mine." So they argued before the king. Right? Many of us maybe had this same argument happening in front of us this week in our homes or at work, uh, where you know people, some group of people, have come to you. I'm not thinking of my children at all, but they've come to you. They want you know some kind of judgment, and all of a sudden it's like you don't exist. Right? There's just this argument going back and forth uh, in front of you. Uh, but this sets the, the stage here. There, there are no witnesses. Uh, it's a she-said, she-said situation. Uh, he doesn't have any conventional means, uh, any eyewitness accounts, and there's no security cameras. Uh, there's no way of just you know, being able to prove what happened here, what, what will be a just outcome. So then the king says, one says, this is my son that is alive, and your son is dead, and with the, while the other says, not so, your son is dead, and my, my son is the living one. So the king said, bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. The king said, divide the living boy in two, then give half to one and half to the other. This is an interesting test, right? Again, you know, in this scenario of trying to mete out justice within my own home, I can just see, you know, uh, some of my kids, Sophia, uh, staring at me and, and just being like, go ahead. Do it, (laughs) right? Uh, You know, just the challenger. Obviously, though, from the response, right, the king's word carried great weight, right? It was serious that, uh, you know, the king is laying a command. What he commands is going to be done. And so you have uh, here as the story continues, uh, but the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because compassion for her son burned within her, please, Lord, Give, uh, give her the living boy. Certainly do not kill him. The other said, It shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide it. Then the king responded, Give the first woman the living boy. Do not kill him. She is his mother. Now, in, in contemporary terms, uh, drawing from the field of psychology, we might suggest that, that Solomon is, is leaning on something we would call kin altruism or parental investment. And the idea behind that is that, you know, the parent who begets the child, right, the parents who birth the child, are on the whole those who are most invested in that child living and flourishing, right? So he's, he's putting this, you know, that's in, in our contemporary terms, that's kind of how we might put what Solomon's doing here, right? He wants to find out who is the real parent. So the child is put in peril, and, uh, and the true parent, responds in, in not, you know, compassion's not strong enough a word, right? It's just they want their child to live, right? They just for the sake of, even for the sake of, of, you know, justice, they're willing to give up justice just so their child would live and survive, right? And so Solomon uh, makes his statement, uh, right? Give the first woman the living boy. Do not kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in, was in him to execute justice. So, so here's this, this story, here's this tale, uh, and, and you know, you've probably heard just even in culture the wisdom of Solomon, uh, or you've uh, maybe heard some version uh, of this uh, tale, I even think there's a Seinfeld episode that does a parody of this. Uh, Right? But, but here's this, this uh, uh, story that's supposed to show us and demonstrate to us, well, here, you, w- you want to see the wisdom of the king, the wisdom of Solomon? This story demonstrates the wisdom of Solomon. But we want to dig into that a little bit deeper. And, and Solomon had asked for wisdom. Now, we can think of wisdom in a couple of ways. One way we might think about wisdom would be to think of it as, uh, you know, ha- to have a, a strong understanding of the nature of things. Right? To, to speak of somebody as wise, uh, this is to speak of them as having this insight uh, into how things work, how things are. Right? That's one way we might speak of wisdom. Another way that we might speak of wisdom would have to do with, it's really practical, right? the wise person who knows the next thing to do. Right? So, so it's, you know, we might put it and say, well, there's, there's theoretical wisdom and there's practical wisdom. Uh, we might say there's wisdom that's like book smarts and wisdom that's like street smarts. And when we look at Solomon, he's referred to uh, as having a wise and discerning heart. Okay? Or, or some translations say a wise and discerning mind. But the point is that book smarts and street smarts are brought together in him. That the wisdom that we would say is more theoretical, yes, that is the wisdom that Solomon has. The wisdom that knows what to do to get to the right result, that's, that's in Solomon. These are the, the, this is the type of wisdom uh, that God has uh, gifted Solomon with. And, and this is the wisdom that we see at work in this, uh, in this story. And it's wisdom to execute justice. So we might say that Solomon understands well what justice is, and Solomon understands well how we can get to justice. These are the characteristics we see in him. Justice, just at its base, we might say justice is, is rendering what's due, right? It's, it's you know, delivering to, we think in personal terms, it's delivering to someone what's owed to them, maybe by a contract, or we might even say it's owed to them by nature uh, in some way. Uh, but it's it's rendering what's due. I think this story pushes us to think a little broader than that, that we'll come to at the end, Uh, right? That that rendering what is due isn't only just an exchange. It's actually, it's about living in God's world. And it has a lot broader implications than just one-on-one relationships. It has to do with relationships more broadly, a relationship to God, a relationship to one another, a relationship to his creation. But uh, Solomon has this wisdom to execute justice. He understood the nature of it. He understood uh, how to get to a right outcome. Uh, and we see uh, right, that he has the capacity for action towards this. Right? This is where he calls for his sword and says, well, let's divide the child in two. And it clearly, they didn't take it as an idle threat. They took it as this, you know, the, the mother needed to act quickly. Uh, and on a side note, you know, there's an interesting, uh, you know, when we look at, at Scripture, uh, children are placed in some perilous situations in Scripture. Just, you know, even we think of Abraham and, and Isaac. Uh, if you think, read Judges, uh, I think 11 with Jephthah, uh, and, Jep- and Jephthah makes this foolish uh, oath to God that leads to him actually sacrificing his daughter. Uh, and we come here uh, to this child. So again, it's a side note uh, and something that's, that's worth thinking about, you know, how, how do we understand children in Scripture, and what do we do with passages like this? So I'm just bringing it up so this afternoon when all of a sudden you have a random thought, and then you're stuck with this, and you have to think about it. Um, anyways, one characteristic of, of a good ruler that we draw out of this story is, is the, he has wisdom to execute justice. He knows justice, and he knows how to act towards justice. Another characteristic of, of Solomon is humility. And and we're going to talk about this in two ways. But the first is humility in receiving wisdom. Now, prior to the story I read to you, we have this passage that explains how Solomon became so uniquely wise. And in this passage, it describes Solomon's love for God. There's there's some questions about worshipping in high places that might raise some questions for us. But one of the key themes that comes out is Solomon loves God. And, uh, and God came to him to, to, in a dream with an offer. So in 1 Kings 3, verse 5, it says, At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. In verse 9, Solomon responds. He says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, to be able to discern between good and evil. For what can go- uh, so sorry, For who can govern this, your great people? So Solomon understands, there's a, there's a humility in him. He understands his task. Uh, not just that he's leading a people, but he's leading God's people. And he understands he needs wisdom to that end. And he understands that God is the one who can give him unique wisdom, true wisdom. And God, it says in verse 10, uh, is pleased. Uh, so three verse 10, it says, it was pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches uh, or for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you and no one like you shall arise after you. Right? God is saying, I'm going to give you this wisdom. I'm going to give you this wisdom in its wholeness to understand well, and to act well, right? I'm going to give this to you. And this story that I just read, here's the demonstration of that wisdom. Now, later in uh, uh, the book of Proverbs, is, is a lot of it is this gathering of wisdom from Solomon. And we see right at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, Solomon tells us how to gain wisdom, right? And you may be very familiar with, with this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 2, he he hits this theme again uh, in verse 5. "Uh, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Uh, I always like to unpack what is the fear of the Lord, right? Uh, The fear of the Lord. And sometimes we'll think, well, I understand what fear is, and Scripture reveals to me who God is, and church helps me understand who God is, so I understand fear, And understand God, but the fear of the Lord isn't—it's not fear like like uh, you know when you're you know uh, some of the younger kids uh, you know when you went to bed last night you jumped like five feet from the door onto your bed to make sure nothing under your bed grabbed your arms like a monster or a sibling uh, right to scare you Uh, right fear is not like that that's not the that doesn't help us understand the fear of the Lord like this just this I'm scared of what moves in the dark or the sound that I heard it's not an anxiety. Right? It's not the, the butterflies I felt before coming up here and standing in front of you or the anxiety you might feel. in a group. It's, it's not like an, an anxiousness. Uh, to, to, to divide those two, Karl Barth says, well, to divide the fear of the Lord and say, well, I know what fear is and I know who God is, so I know what the fear of the Lord is. He says, that's, that's like trying to say, well, I can describe a butterfly to you. You have butter and you have a fly, right? <laughs> uh, well, you're going to get a, kind of a gross and, and poor understanding of butterfly that way. And the same would happen with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord has to do with this this recognition, this knowledge of God's awesome saving power. Uh, And if you want to dig deeper into that, read Psalm 111 this afternoon or sometime this week. But it gives you this picture of God's covenant faithfulness to Israel and his awesome saving power. And it ends with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? Uh, It gives us this picture. And so Solomon has this, this understanding that this is where, you know, what is the source of, of wisdom? The source of wisdom is God. And true wisdom is standing before God with open arms, recognizing his awesome, saving power. Right? This is where wisdom comes from. So Solomon has this humility, and he, he passes that on to us. You should be humble before the, law, before the Lord. Right? Bend your knees uh, and, and do quake in the face of his awesome, saving power. Right, to understand wisdom. Uh, but Solomon was humble in receiving wisdom, but I would also argue that Solomon's humble in dispensing justice. There's a humility to his, his doing of justice. And we see this here in this passage, 1 Kings 3.16. Later, two women who were prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. And the obvious question this raises for me is, how is it the two prostitutes, a shameful occupation uh, in ancient Israel and in most times and in most societies, how is it that they were bringing their case before the king? We, we need to consider that. And, and I, I don't have an answer for you, really. Uh, I, you know, I don't have some examples of ancient courts that I can point you to. The, the text itself doesn't really just kind of flatly lays it here. Here's these two prostitutes, and they're coming, and they're bringing their case uh, before the king. Um, you, know, when we, you know, the interesting thing is, here God has gifted wisdom to Solomon. So, you know, in, in my nature, if I was going to say, oh, God's done this, so what, well, let's see, you know, how Solomon deals with international relations. Uh, let's see Solomon deal with some intractable domestic problem. Let's see Solomon debate, you know, some other sage of, of that time. Let's go to the greatest, right? If, if Solomon's got this great wisdom, well, then we should go to the greatest platform, the greatest stage, so he can demonstrate it. But what happens here? No, two prostitutes approach him with their problem. Okay? The, the people who, who society would have seen as lowly and who would have seen themselves as lowly, that's who is coming to him uh, in justice. Uh, seeking justice, I should say. So it reveals to us that somehow here, the lower members of society had access to Solomon's court. These two women were able to come, and the king listened to their desperate case, right? and he exercised his God-given wisdom to settle it. Right? Wouldn't we be tempted, uh, you know, uh, we've, we've had a dream from God, he's given us wisdom, maybe we've had it confirmed in us. Uh, sorry, I don't. We've, I have lower courts for this. I have other people that handle this. I've got a guy. He'll he'll help you, right? Uh, no, we see the king here dealing with the real problems of people who society is marginalizing, who society is casting out, and he's dealing with uh, he's he's uh, dealing justice to them. Uh, and in this. Uh, I think it's a reminder, uh, it makes me think of uh, Isaiah 42.3, which is, which is quoted again uh, by Jesus in Matthew 12. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Right? Justice is coming to those who need it. God is concerned about justice for the weak, the lowly, the marginalized, those suffering in, in shame. Now, on the other hand, we might go, maybe, uh, you know, if these are, you know, the the smoldering wick, uh, you know, the kind of the sword trick is a little bit rough. Uh, I can't explain necessarily how that all fits together. But we have this picture. There's humility. The the lowly in society can bring their case before God's king, right? The appointed king uh, that God has appointed. And they can bring their case before it, and they can receive justice, Okay. And last, wisdom in executing justice is done for the sake of God's shalom. So there's wisdom in executing justice, there's humility. Justice is received through humility. Uh, justice is dispensed through humility. And last here, justice is exercised for the sake of God's shalom. Now, shalom uh, is a term you may be familiar with. In fact, some of you may even just say it randomly to others. It's, uh, I have friends that kind of do that, not necessarily a religious way, it's just they like saying it, it makes it sound cool, shalom. Um, Right? But shalom means this vital flourishing of all things in right relationship with one another. Right? This is what shalom means. Vital flourishing of all things in right relationship to one another. Now we translate shalom as peace. Right? So we would use the word peace. Uh, but if we're just using the word peace and we think peace means a lack of conflict, then we have a really impoverished notion of peace. And we have a notion of peace that is not connected to Shalom. To be connected to shalom, it's recognizing how uh, it, this vital flourishing of all things in right relationship to one another. And we see that Solomon is using wisdom to set things aright, even for some of the most marginalized of society. It's to set things aright. Uh, and we see this here in verse, uh, 1 Kings 3.27. And, and the connection I'm making here might not be immediately evident uh, but the, he says, Then the king responded, Give the first woman the living boy. Do not kill him. She is his mother. And I would submit to you here that what he's saying is, it's, it's, it's not just that that really was her child, and so in fairness to her, give her her child back. It was also that this is right. You know, that notion of, of kin altruism, uh, the child should be returned to his mother because she cares deeply about him. I mean, that was the hinge of, of the, the judgment, right? He knew that that the real mother could not stand by her child being sacrificed just so she could be right, just so she could get her possession back. The real mother cared about his flourishing, right? And that's how the world is set up. That's I would. I would argue, actually, that, that sex and procreation, these are things we need to understand in relation to shalom, into the right ordering of the world. right? And so here's this, this picture uh, we have. Return him to his rightful mother. right? Shalom, in that sense, is restored. Now, now, there's at least two questions that raises for me. One is, I'm not trying to suggest... That uh, well, there should be no adoption or foster care in our world, uh, right? I, or that uh, a, a, a birth parent never harms their child, Sophia, okay. right? Uh, right? I'm not trying to suggest that, that that never happens. Clearly, it does. We have the news. You have the internet. You can you can find those things, right? The point here, though, is that procreation that this this not not just natural affection but the lifeblood flowing from parent to child this is the blueprint for care so where adoption is required where foster care is required for the care of those marginalized is is required for for children the blueprint we have is parenthood uh, of of uh, you know the 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 child who's born of their parents that that of uh, sorry i'm i'm Stumbling over words here, but, right? The parent and their offspring, that's the blueprint. That's what adoption should be based out of. That's what foster care should be based out of. That is the picture of shalom, right? It's this very ordinary but majestic picture of shalom that we get in everyday life, okay? So it, it's, I'm just saying, you know, as we think about this in contemporary terms in doing justice, yes, of course, there's people who do harm to their children. We know that. But the blueprint is here in how God has established the world. The second thing, and and the point to make here is that that doing justice and fighting for shalom, fighting for peace in this rich, uh, godly way, it's messy business. So the second part comes out of the story. And that is, uh, we have uh, at the end of the text uh, this uh, statement about uh, Israel. Right, Everybody is in awe of the king's wisdom and in the justice that he meted out. And the text ends abruptly there. But what the text doesn't tell us is there's, there's two women leaving that court, right? Uh, one woman who's gone through a traumatic experience but thankfully has her child. Another woman whose child is dead and who shamefully tried to replace that child. And, uh, and I'm not sure whatever, again, we don't know the consequences, right? But there's, there's two people who are completely traumatized by the night's and and morning's events. And shalom isn't just getting right the judgment, right, wisdom and justice. We need to be involved in this broken, fallen, uh, world full of rebellion. We need to be involved in making things right in this world. So we, we don't just you know, walk away from this and, and uh, we should be in awe of the wisdom. But that wisdom and actually the book of Proverbs would help us to carry through on what do we do in this broken world? How do we live uh, justice calling out to, to the children? Um, but I, I, I don't want to leave you with just a nice tight bow wrapped up on here's this awesome thing that happened. Uh, doing justice, living in peace is messy business. And it's a business that we need to be about in our church, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in the world that God has given us. And we need to be about it, not just in places that highlight our gifts, our abilities, but in the places where other people are not doing justice or are not caring about justice. We need to be about that business. Micah 6.8 reads, He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Today, we we talked about wisdom and justice, and we brought humility into it. In two weeks, uh, we're gonna talk about loving kindness, Uh, but humility will be the thread that that connects those as well. Uh, We need to remember that uh, justice and love matter deeply to God, and if we are going to be just people and loving people, God is our source in those things. Uh, in Beowulf, uh, I, I held back a little bit, because Hrothgar recognized this, so uh, it says, "...then it came into Hrothgar's heart that he would command men to fashion a hall and a mansion, a mightier house uh, for their mead-drinking than the children of men had ever known, and therewithin would he apportion all things to young and old, such as God had granted him." Right? Hrothgar, uh, hear this generous king, uh, why? Right, He recognized who God was, and he recognized God as the source and the lead in this type of generosity. Later in that poem, Rothgar, uh, in, in speaking to Beowulf and trying to impart to Beowulf, here's what a good king looks like. Uh, he says, "Wondrous 'tis wondrous to tell how the mighty God doth apportion in his deep purpose, deep unto the race of men, wisdom, lands, and noble estate. Of all things, he is Lord. Rothgar was a good ruler because he submitted to God, and he recognized God as the source of all goodness. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. The the message today isn't just for kings of the past or leaders of today, uh, political leaders of some kind. It's for moms and dads, uh, big brothers, big sisters, Uh, little uh, sisters and brothers it's for shift leads Uh, it's for uh, CEOs Uh, it's for people who have just one other person that they are leading right here is a word to us right seek God's wisdom seek it in and dispense it in humility and in seeking God's wisdom seek it at the service of Shalom uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going we're to close and, and uh, pray a prayer together. And it's a prayer of St. Augustine. So we'll pray this, and then your uh, saints is going to come back up. Uh, but if you feel comfortable, please join with me. Look upon us, O Lord, and let all the darkness of our souls vanish before the beams of your brightness. Fill us with holy love and open to us the treasure of your wisdom. All our desire is known unto you. Therefore, perfect what you have begun and what your spirit has awakened us to ask in prayer. We seek your face, turn your face unto us, and show us your glory. Then shall our longings be satisfied and our peace shall be perfect. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.